only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding die. The scripture for the sermon today is found in Luke chapter 7. It's on page 863 in the Blue Pew Bible. I'll be reading verses 18 through 28. Luke chapter 7, this is the word of our Lord. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who was to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour... He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The word of the one who was to come. If you'd like, please pray with me. Gracious Father, there is nothing we need more at this very moment than you. Lord, we need you to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to stir up our faith. We need you to grow large in our eyes. We ask that in these next few minutes, you would teach us. Lord, some of us are here and, and we're glad to be here. We, we feel like we're in the right place. We feel like we're good with you. Others of us, we're not even sure why we're in this room. We thank you that our presence here, and more important, your presence here is not based upon 
us, but based upon you and your grace. And we pray that you would have your way with us in these next minutes. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've not left us alone to try to make sense out of life on our own, but that you have spoken, that you have lived, that you have shown it, and you have redeemed it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. It is great to be here with you guys. Uh, Really, just wonderful. Many of you know the story of Dustin Salter and his bicycle accident. My guess is that some of you don't, and so I want to tell you it. Dustin was the RUF campus minister at TCU from the fall of 1998 through the spring of 2006. If you're unfamiliar with RUF, RUF is the campus ministry, the college ministry of our denomination. We take college students so seriously that we actually send seminary-trained, ordained men onto the campuses of college all across the nation to pastor students. Dustin, in 2006, with Leanne and the kids, packed up the car and they headed east to Greenville, South Carolina, where Dustin became the RUF campus minister at Furman University. One Thursday afternoon, Dustin went for a bike ride around the block. Earlier that day, Dustin had gone out and he had bought a new used mountain bike. And when his boys got home, Jacob, who at that time was nine, and Nathan, who at that time was seven, Dustin said, hey, you guys want to go for a bike ride? And of course, they said, we want to go for a bike ride. So they hopped on their bikes and they took off around the block. No one's sure what happened, but something clearly happened. Because less than 100 yards from the back door of the Salter's house, all six foot six of Dustin somehow was catapulted over the front of his bicycle. He landed on the back of his head on a manhole cover and instantly went into a coma. When the EMS folks arrived, they recognized the seriousness of the situation and they radioed in for a helicopter to come and pick Dustin up and care flight him to Greenville Memorial Hospital in downtown Greenville. Kathy and I lived with our family in Raleigh, North Carolina, about five hours away. And we, when we got word of Dustin's accident, we pulled our kids out of school and we headed south to Greenville. And over the next six or eight weeks, one or all of us lived with the Salters in their house. One morning, it was, it was close to Thanksgiving, Kathy and Leanne had spent the night at the hospital. So I was at home alone with my kids and with Jacob, Nathan, and Meredith. I was sitting in, in their bedroom, and I was thinking, I thought, I can't remember the last time I picked up my Bible. And then I thought, I know that I've prayed, but I, I can't remember the last time I prayed. I just felt cold. I felt numb. I felt spiritually dead. And as I was sitting in that rocking chair that that, that morning, I said something that I thought I would never say. I said, God, I don't even know if you exist. I don't even know if you exist. 
have you, have you ever had an experience like that where everything that you say you believe comes crashing down around you like a house of cards? Have you ever had an experience like that where your faith is shaken to the very core of its being? This past year, in my RUF at NC State, we looked at the Gospel of Luke. We worked our way through the Gospel of Luke and we asked one question every week. We asked the question, who is the real Jesus? When we came to this passage, what we discovered is that very often, Jesus leaves you. Jesus leaves me full of questions. Full of doubts. And the question that we need to think about this morning in this room is how are we to deal with our questions and doubts? Some of you might be uncomfortable, even troubled, that I would even ask that question. Some of you might believe or you might have been taught that Christians aren't supposed to doubt. That Christians are people of faith. That they're not people of doubt. A number of years ago, I went to a a youth conference right here in Fort Worth. I sat in an enormous room with about a thousand young folks and a nationally renowned speaker stood up in front of us all and proclaimed, since the day I asked Jesus into my heart, I have never had a doubt and neither should you. What do you think? What do you think if that was what I was to say to you this morning? Folks, I've been a believer since 1990. We like to joke in my house that I squeezed three years of seminary into five years. I have done ministry in the church for 17 years. And I've been ordained by the church for almost 10 years. And i got to be honest with you. There are mornings when I wake up. And I wonder to myself, is all this stuff I say I believe really true? Or am I just a living example of that story we all grew up hearing? The story of the king who had no clothes. Now maybe that confession makes you uncomfortable too, but I don't really have a problem with that. Because because of what we see in this passage. I want you to think for a minute about John the Baptist. What do you know about John the Baptist? Well, in Luke chapter 1, we read that John the Baptist and Jesus were related, that they were cousins, that John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. In Luke chapter 3, we read that when John the Baptist grew up, he became a preacher, but not a preacher like me, not a preacher like Darwin. John the Baptist wandered around the Jordanian wilderness calling people to repentance and baptizing them for the forgiveness of their sins. We also learn in Luke chapter 3 that John the Baptist actually baptized Jesus. In another gospel's account of that baptism, we discover, we learn that when the heavens were torn, when the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove, John the Baptist saw it with his own eyes. That when God the Father proclaimed, You are my Son in whom I am well pleased, John the Baptist heard it with his ears. 
We learn in our passage, in verse 27, that John the Baptist was not only a prophet, but that up to that very moment in time, he was the greatest believer to have ever walked the face of the earth. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's that's quite an endorsement when you consider the source. Yeah, that's quite an endorsement when you consider the company, the, the Abrahams and the Moseses and the Davids, Isaiah, Elisha, Elijah. And yet, what do you see in this passage? What do you see? What is John doing in this passage in spite of everything that he knows? In spite of everything that he believes, in spite of everything that he has experienced, in spite of hearing the very voice of God the Father and seeing God the Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of a dove, what is John doing? He's struggling with questions, even doubts. Folks, The first thing I want you to see this morning is that the Bible never promises that you will be free from questions and doubts until one of two things happens. Until you die to go be with Jesus or until Jesus comes back to be with you. And what that means for you and for me is that we should never be surprised by questions and doubts. One pastor I consulted as I was thinking about questions and doubts in Christianity made the argument that questions and doubts can actually be spiritually beneficial. He writes this, he says, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her doubts. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with their doubts. I tell you this not to encourage you to doubt, but the fact of the matter is this that at some point, every person in this room is going to hit the spiritual wall. Maybe you already have. Maybe you will again. You're going to hit the spiritual wall and you are going to be filled with questions and doubts. And I simply don't want you to be surprised. Questions and doubts do not disqualify you from being a believer, a Christian. In fact, questions and doubts are a normal part of the Christian experience. If you don't believe me, just read through the Psalms. What does that mean for those of you who might be checking out Christianity, who are sort of on the outside of the Christian bubble looking in? Well, it means this. It means that if if you are looking for an airtight, locked-down argument for why you should trust Jesus, you're not going to get one. Because Christianity is not a philosophy It is a relationship. One pastor put it like this. He said, coming to Jesus, coming to believe in Jesus is like falling in love. People come to Jesus because in some mysterious way they are drawn to him and they fall in love with the risen Christ. 
All this to say, doubt is a normal part of the Christian experience. But that raises a question. Why do we doubt? Why do we, why do we have questions and doubts? Well, my guess is that there are as many answers to that question as there are people sitting in this room. Some of you have tasted tragedy. You have buried loved ones, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, husbands, wives, brothers or sisters. Some of you have, have been abused. Some of you have been abandoned. And you know what the Bible says about God, that He is all-loving and that He is all-powerful. And yet you wonder, you struggle to make sense of this all-loving, all-powerful God in, in your experience of what could be described as a taste of hell. Maybe that's not you. But we all live in a world. We, we live in a world where we are confronted, we are faced with every day. That, that we live in a world with, with people who don't think or believe what we think. We live in a pluralistic world. And if you're a thinking person, you have to ask the question from time to time with, with all of these different kinds of people who believe all of these different kinds of things. How is it again that we can say that Jesus is the only way? Perhaps you know the name Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a professor of religion at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He's just written a book entitled Jesus Interrupted, Revealing the Hidden Contradictions in the Bible and Why We Don't Know About Them. In this book, Ehrman unapologetically attacks the Bible and Christianity in a very scholarly way. When you read books like Ehrman's book or read articles that, that say the same thing that Ehrman's book says, or even when you see movies like The Da Vinci Code, you, you can't help but wonder, why, why is it that I trust that, that this book is, is the very Word of God? And there are who knows how many other things that can lead us to questions and doubts. But here's the question that I want to ask. Is there anything that stands at the center of all of these different questions and doubts? Is there anything that, that unites all of, these other, all of these questions and doubts? Is there anything that they all have in common? Think about it for a second. I think our tendency is to think about doubt as if it is the absence of belief. But that's not exactly true. Doubt isn't the absence of belief, but rather doubt is rooted in alternative beliefs. Let me give you an example. Maybe it'll help you understand. Think about me sitting in Dustin and Leanne's bedroom, a seminary-trained, ordained pastor, saying out loud, God I don't even know if you exist. How do you make sense of that? Well, it was because I had certain beliefs about God and about life, about right and wrong, about good and evil, about fair and unfair that went flying out the window the minute Dustin went flying over those handlebars. 
And what that means is that all of your questions and all of your doubts reveal not that you don't believe or have faith in something, but that what you believe in and have faith in doesn't square with what the Bible teaches. And you see, that's exactly what's happening in our passage as well. I mean, think about it. Why does John send two of his disciples to Jesus and ask, are you the one to come or should we look for another? For those of you who have your Bibles, flip back to Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist is... is uh, is preaching in the wilderness and he's comparing himself and his ministry with the person and ministry of Jesus. Listen to what John says beginning in verse 16. And John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing. In a word, judgment. And here's the deal. John was right to expect judgment, sort of. I mean, John knew his Old Testament. He had studied the prophets and he knew that the day would come when God's Messiah would come to the earth and judge all the peoples of the earth. But think about Jesus and his ministry at the time of John. What's Jesus doing He's wandering around and he is preaching and teaching that he has come for sinners. That the kingdom of God belongs to the poor, to the hungry, to those who weep, to those who are persecuted because of their association with him. And he's performing all kinds of miracles, healing both Jews and Gentiles alike. Earlier in Luke chapter 7, Jesus heals a Roman centurion's servant. Now, that might not strike you as odd. But it would have struck John as odd. The Romans were the enemies. When the Messiah would return, the Romans would be judged. And yet here's Jesus healing the Romans' servants. Jesus is not who John expects him to be. Jesus is not doing the kinds of things that John expected him to do. And as a consequence, John is filled with questions and doubts. Folks, that's exactly why we struggle with questions and doubts. Jesus does not live up to our expectations. More than that, I'm going to say this, don't walk out the door. Jesus will disappoint you. He will disappoint you. But here's the thing you need to know. What Jesus does or doesn't do, regardless of how you feel, is always in your best interest. I mean, think again about John the Baptist. What would have happened if Jesus had shown up not as a Savior, but as the judge that John had expected? What would have happened? As great a man as John was, and he was great, 
he too would have been swept away by the all-consuming wave of the wrath and judgment of a righteous God. Why? Because like you and me, John was a sinner. Sure, he was a prophet. Sure, he was the greatest believer to have ever walked the face of the earth to that moment in time. But folks, John the Baptist was a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. And Jesus doesn't grade on a curve. What does this teach us? Jesus didn't do what John wanted him to do. He did what John needed him to do. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us. In the late 1700s, John Newton wrote a letter where he basically says something very similar. He says, everything is needful that he, God, sins. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means Jesus most definitely will not give you everything you want or expect. But he will always, always give you everything you need. So one final question we'll call today. What do you do with your questions and doubts? My guess is that if you're like me, you don't really know what to do with your questions and doubts. And so you do one of who knows how many different things. Some of you live in in denial. You try to deny that you have any questions or any doubts. Some of you try to ignore them. Some of you try to sort of whip up faith in yourself that sort of will squelch that, that voice, that question, that doubt. Now, why do we do that? Well, I think it's because we believe that we are saved by our faith rather than by Jesus. We place our faith in our faith rather than in the person and work of Christ. We live as if our act of faith saves us rather than the Lord Jesus Christ who is the object of our faith. And the consequence... We live in denial of our questions and doubts. But when they get the best of us, we wonder, am I really a believer? Am I really a Christian? Folks, what does John do in this passage? This is important because this is the difference between doubt and in unbelief, what does John do? He takes his questions, he takes his doubts to Jesus. Verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? What you need to see is that doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. Doubt and unbelief might ask the same question. Doubters turn to God while unbelievers turn 
away from God. Doubters turn to God because they know that their only hope isn't in the strength of their faith, but in the strength of their faithful Savior. Unbelievers turn away from God because they think it's up to them. And and as a consequence, they harden their hearts and their mind to God. How does Jesus respond to our questions and doubts? After graduating from seminary in 1995, I started looking for a church job. And so I interviewed here and there, actually really here, there and everywhere. It was during those months that my wife, Kathy, was going through sort of a crisis of faith, a struggle. And she came to me and she said, Jeff, I'm having all these questions. I'm having all these doubts. I'm seminary trained. I'm looking for a job in the church. How do you think I responded? I slammed my hand down and I said, you can't ask questions like that. Yeah, Ken knows it's the truth. Is that how Jesus responds to your questions and doubts? Is that how Jesus responded to John's questions and doubts? Of course not. Jesus doesn't give John a verbal tongue lashing. He doesn't get angry with John. He doesn't explode or flip out or act surprised. He doesn't throw his arms up in the air and say, well, you can tell John. Instead, Beginning in verse 21, it says, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen. The lame walk. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Folks, when, when, when Jesus tells John's disciples to go and, and report to John all that they've seen and heard, Jesus is not giving them sort of a random assortment of his various activities. Jesus is actually alluding to a number of passages from the prophet Isaiah, passages that describe the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom of God and the blessings that would flow, that would live in the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying to John is he's saying, yes, John, I am the one. I am the one that you have been looking for. I am the one that you have been waiting for. But he's also saying something else. You see, in each one of these passages from Isaiah that Jesus is alluding to, there is not only the promise of blessing, but there is the promise of judgment. One of those passages that Jesus is alluding to is Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Listen to this. Isaiah writes, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It sounds an awful lot like what's going on in the ministry of Jesus, doesn't it? But listen to what the prophet Isaiah says just one verse earlier. Isaiah 35, verse 4. He says this. He says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. 
John the Baptist expects vengeance and the recompense of God. John the Baptist expects that Jesus is going to show up with both guns ablazing. But you see, what Jesus is saying in his silence is what he says elsewhere explicitly. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus answered John's question the way he did because, as we learn from the rest of the gospel, Jesus didn't come to be a judge. He came to be judged. And on the cross, Jesus experienced the full judgment of God, the white-hot wrath of God that those of you who look to him in faith deserve. Why is that? It's so that we could experience the blessings of God so that we would not just be citizens of the kingdom of God, but so that we would be the adopted sons and daughters of the king of the kingdom of God. Think about that. That is good news. There's one last thing that I need to point out before we close. In verse 23, Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is acknowledging that at times, you and I are going to struggle to make sense of him. Like John the Baptist, we are all going to wonder in our heart of hearts, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, blessed are you who do not walk away from me when I don't live up to your expectations. Because what I am doing, even though you might not understand it, is far better than anything you could ever ask or imagine. In Mark chapter 9, we read a story about a father who who brings his demon-possessed son to be healed. Initially, the father goes to Jesus' disciples, but Jesus' disciples can't cast out the demon. So the father turns to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus responds, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. The father instantly cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you know what Jesus did. Do you know how Jesus responded? He said, go home and work up your faith. And when your faith is strong, come back to me and then I'll cast out the demon from your son. That's what Jesus did. Amen. Let's go home. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus looked at the son and he looked at the father and he cast the demon out and he gave the son back to his father. This is how Jesus responds to those who turn to him with their questions and doubts. Final question. What is your posture before God when you're struggling with questions and doubts? What do you do when you come face to face with your questions and doubts. Beloved, 
there is super abounding grace for those who turn toward Jesus and cry out with the Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. If you'd like, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we we struggle to believe this. We struggle to believe that you don't ask anything of us, but that we look to you. We struggle to believe that you are this good, this kind, this merciful, this forgiving, this understanding. And yet when we look at the cross, we are reminded, yes, you are. We pray this morning that you would help us to believe. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Grow our faith. Give us a confidence. Not in our faith, but in your faithfulness. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?